Paul in the letter to the Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. The apostle writes here, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Lord, we thank you for our worship so far this morning in song and in liturgy. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, hearing it read and sang. We thank you for our joint confession of faith. Lord God, we pray that as we continue to worship you, Lord, through the teaching and preaching of your word, Lord, through the Eucharist, Lord, through more singing, And liturgy, Lord God, we do pray, Father, that our worship would be honorable to you, Lord, that your name would be made great among your people here at Christ Community Church, and Lord, that our worship would be in spirit and in truth. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today we are beginning our, which this is kind of an oxymoron, right? We're beginning our final look at the letter to the Colossians. So as we do so, uh, let's, let's just remind ourselves quickly what the, this framework of this letter, or at least the framework that we've been working through over the last month. Right? So if you'll remember, the Colossians were dealing with a really odd mixture of heresy. Right? It was a mixture of Gnosticism as well as this, the Judaizer heresy that was taking root, which required certain ascetic practices. But also this mixture of... Eastern mysticism, and even Jewish mysticism to a degree. This, this was all wrapped up into one weird heresy that was trying to invade the Colossian church. And so this really left that church with all out of sorts on how to approach this heresy, how to answer this heresy, or as they called themselves, this philosophy. We saw Paul reference them as such last week. And so they were raising such questions like, was there more to the gospel that they had heard from Epaphras and that the apostles were proclaiming? Or... Was Jesus possibly completely different than they had been originally taught? I mean, these are questions that are coming up. Other questions were, were there certain ascetic practices that they should be doing in order to be reconciled to God? This philosophy was challenging that. Or one final one, just real quick. Were, were they possibly missing out on a more intense experience, quote-unquote, 
of God because they were not seeing visions and they were not worshiping angels as this heresy was telling them they should be doing. So you can imagine the confusion, right? I mean, this, is, this would confuse anybody, especially a church of this time period where the history of Christianity is still very new. And so what we've seen Paul doing then over the last few weeks is giving the Colossians and us a framework, right, of orthodoxy. So right belief about God and about the gospel and about Christ and orthopraxy, right working out of that faith, a right living out of that faith. And he does this by reminding them that Christ is preeminent. That it is God, not philosophies, not special knowledge, but God who has worked to reconcile us to himself. And he's done so by the cross of Christ and by the literal flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds the Colossians, he says, don't become confused and don't become overwhelmed by those who are going to question this unified message of the gospel of Jesus that you have heard, that you've heard from Epaphras, that you've heard from us now in this letter. But rather, he tells them, he says, look, be rooted in Christ, be built up in Christ, be built up in that orthodox gospel that you have believed and abound in thanksgiving and hold fast to your confession of the Lord Jesus. And so as we come to this text today, Paul, he continues in that framework of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And like last week, what he does is he continues to throw punches at this, at this heresy, right? It's like Muhammad Ali in the, in the ring, right? He's, 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 he's knocking them out, right? But... What he does this time, though, he does something a little different than what he did last week in chapter 2 because what this heresy is doing, and we saw this a little bit last week, they are insisting on mysticism. They are insisting on ascetic practices. And so what Paul does this week is he counters that teaching with a frame, through the framework of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. He counters it by giving them examples of what mysticism that is grounded in orthodoxy should look like as well as practices, ascetic practices or orthopraxy that is grounded in orthodoxy. So he counters by giving true Christian outworkings of these things. And so in verses 1 through 4, which if you're looking in your bulletin there, you could put a little hyphen if you want or a, or a slash uh, in front of that sentence that starts with put to death therefore. Everything that comes before that is verses 1 through 4. And so what he, Paul does is he offers us and offers the Colossians a final word on orthodoxy by pointing us to an orthodox approach to mysticism. And he, he says this again, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So you can see this mystical mystery working out just even in these four verses. But he begins that verse... With that annoying little word, if, right? It's the, that joke of it's the biggest little word in English, right? That if. So remember, a couple of weeks ago in verse, chapter 1, verse 23, he did the same thing. In verse 23 of chapter 1, he tells us, we have been reconciled to God if we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. But this time, he, he uses the word if as a purpose for clarifying his argument. He's saying, look, if we have been raised with Christ... If we have been raised with Christ through faith, then that if clarifies that, right? If you have, but remember, our faith is an incarnational one, right? So our baptisms, as he told us last week in chapter 2, verse 12, our baptisms serve as a tangible, incarnational, literal reminder of our death and resurrection in Christ. And so Paul says here, he says, if, if you have truly been buried and raised with Christ, if you have been reconciled to God through the flesh and blood of Christ... If God has canceled, like we saw last week, if he has canceled 
that record of debt against you. And if Christ has been victorious in his cross, then if all of that, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This tells us that a mysticism grounded in orthodoxy is completely focused on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then right out of the gate, right here in verse, verse 1, we, we've got to take a minute, and this is going to be a constant theme throughout this whole text today. You've got to pause and you've got to be careful because we have to be careful so that we properly understand the difference between an orthodox proclamation of the Lord Jesus versus any heretical teaching that claims that they're teaching the truth about Jesus. Because all Christian heresy, and I'm putting Christian obviously in bold italicized air quotes, because there are different, there's a difference between false religions and Christian heresy, right? But all Christian heresy tries to be close enough to the truth so that way it easily sounds like it's orthodoxy even though it's not. Right? This is how false teachers are able to invade Christian communities all the time, right? There's just enough biblical language that's filtered into them that it can confuse you and make you think that it's orthodox. This happens a lot. This has happened for the last 2,000 years. This is why Gnosticism and the Judaizer heresy and this mysticism was able to take root not only in Colossae but in these other churches. So remember, this heresy in particular, so to make the distinction, sound the alarm, make this distinction, this heresy particularly, the Gnostic part of it, denied the goodness of creation. Right? It denied the body for the sake of being hyper-spiritual. So right there is a, is a key, right? If they're denying the goodness of the body, then they're denying the bodily incarnation of Christ. But for them, only the spiritual life mattered because the flesh was evil, the flesh was corruptible. And therefore, the flesh could not be redeemed. And so remember, they taught that since the body doesn't matter, it didn't matter then what happens in the body as long as the spiritual things were settled. And Paul has attacked this head on, right? He's attacked it head on in this letter by reminding us that the body does matter because Christ Jesus came in a body. He suffered in a body. He died in a body. He was raised in a body. And through his body, we are reconciled to God. So the body does matter. But here we also, here's how we have to be careful because none of us have yet physically died, right? We, we read this. Now, if you have physically died, hang out because I've never talked to a ghost, right? So that's a bad joke, but it's a good point, right? We've never physically died. But also, reading this verse, we've also never been physically raised to life. We are still currently living in our fallen flesh and blood state. This is why Paul has spent so much time laying out an orthodox position of the gospel and of God and of Christ so that he can now turn to speak on the spiritual matters as they are properly understood through an orthodox proclamation of Christ Jesus. So while we are not currently raised physically in Christ, in our physical glorified bodies, we have been raised with Christ spiritually. So this is why he encouraged us last week to remember our baptisms, because our baptisms are an incarnational reminder of our spiritual reality. This is what he tells the Ephesians in chapter 2. But God, who has been rich in mercy, has raised us and has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. So here is how, an, how he begins to counterattack this heresy and its false mysticism with an orthodox understanding of mysticism. Paul commands us, he says, seek the things that are above because above is where Jesus literally and physically is seated at the right hand of God. And since we have been raised with Christ spiritually, Christ is where our contemplative 
and meditative lives ought to be focused. Because Christ is above. Christ is above in heaven at the right hand of God, which is his rightful place of authority and sovereignty and supremacy. And so that is the focus of an orthodox mysticism. Because in the saving work of God through the bodily incarnation of the Lord Jesus, Christians have now received his resurrection life. And we are to continue to seek those spiritual realities by setting our minds to meditate and to pray and to seek the things that are of heaven over and above the things that are on earth. To put it simply, right, because that's a lot, right? So to put it simply, make Christ the center of all thought, life, and practice because our destination is above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. John Calvin wrote on this. He said, when in our minds we are truly travelers in this world, then we are not bound to it. Seek the things that are above. And so verse 2, what Paul then does, moving into the second verse, is he, he starts to answer the question of how we are to pursue the things that are above where Christ is. He says, set your mind to it. Put your mind to the task. Again, he says this, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And now, we, again, here is that second part where we have to be careful again, right? So here's point two, be careful. Because it's easy to try and convince ourselves that, well, this is just a simple mind over matter type philosophy. Well, thankfully, last week he's already cleared that up because all philosophies that are mind over matter is just a philosophy of empty deceit, right? Like this heretical philosophy taking root in Colossae. But remember last week in, in verse 18 of chapter 2, he says, don't be puffed up by your sensuous mind. Don't, this is not a mind over matter issue. Matthew Henry writes here, he says, To seek the heavenly things is to set our affections upon them, to love them and to let our desires be towards them. And so we must acquaint ourselves with the heavenly things and esteem them above all other things. And so when Paul, here in verse 2, commands us to set our minds, to put our focus on the things that are above, what he's telling us is to have the mind of Christ himself. The mind of Christ is a mind that is set above into the heavenly places. It's the mind that is being renewed, he tells us in Romans 12 too. It's being renewed and not conformed to the patterns of this world. This is the same mind that Peter encourages us in his first letter in chapter 4. He says this is a mind that is armed with the thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a mind set on the things of God and on the working of the Spirit of God. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 6, he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit, is of life and peace. So here, again, here's number three, right? A number, reason, a number three reason ought to be careful because you can see where this can become twisted pretty quickly. Because Paul is not trying to drive a wedge between spiritual and physical realities. This is what this heresy is doing. Rather, what Paul's point here is to encourage us and to exhort us and to admonish the Christian and the church to pursue and to think on Christ with the mind of Christ constantly. Again, this is why Paul has spent so much of this letter laying out an orthodox understanding of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Because if we are to proclaim Christ, we have to rightly understand who he is. But also, if we are to be orthodox in our orthopraxy, then we have to have the mind of Christ. And we have to think on Christ and we have to have our minds turned upward to the right hand of God, where Christ is physically seated in his flesh and blood body in a place of supremacy and authority and sovereignty. 
But then in the same verse, Paul makes a specific clarification. He also tells us, he says, not just, don't just set your minds on the things that are above, but also do not set them on the things that are on earth. And so what Paul is doing here, because you could see where this could be taken wrong as well, right? Well, if I'm not supposed to be concerned about the things of the earth, then who cares what goes on around me, right? That, that, that can be the easy way to take this the wrong way. That's not what Paul is saying, right? He's not suggesting that we don't have cares or concerns. He's not suggesting that we should ignore the problems around us. The point that Paul is stressing is that we are not to place our salvation hope in the things that are on earth. That is what this philosophy was doing. That is what all heresies are doing. They teach, all heresies teach, that all their teachings that threatens to draw us away from an orthodox position in Christ is ultimately teaching us and tempting us to put our salvation hope in the things that are on earth, not the things that are above, regardless of how well they bathe it in Christianese. This is why all heresies sound like they could be true because they bathe it in enough biblical language to try to make it sound true. Paul has told us what an orthodox proclamation of Christ is. Matthew Henry, again, he writes here, he says, Heaven and earth are contrary to one another, and a supreme regard for both is inconsistent. The prevalence of our affection to one, he says, will proportionately weaken and abate our affection to the other. Jesus himself said this directly. He said, you cannot serve two masters. You will either hate the one or love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And so this is why Paul is so concerned with orthodoxy, right? A mysticism that is based and grounded in orthodoxy, as opposed to a mysticism of this heresy that's at work here, focuses on and contemplates on and meditates on our incarnational faith as manifested through the incarnation of Christ Jesus. That he came in a body, was crucified, died, buried, raised, and ascended in a body. That he sits in a body at the right hand of God. This is an incarnational tangible reality of the heavenly mysteries that we proclaim. And this is why and where the focus of our faith and meditations should be. And so then in verses 3 and 4, Paul offers us, he says, here's, well, here's two reasons why now an orthodox mysticism differs from that of this heresy that's trying to take place in Colossae. He says verse in verse 3, we have died with Christ. This is why This is a true orthodox mysticism. He says, you have died with Christ, and so your life is hidden with Christ in God. Remember, we were buried with Christ in our baptism, and that incarnational evidence of our spiritual existence should not be forgotten or left in the past. You should remember that you have been buried with Christ in your baptism, and you should remember it always. And then you should live out of that evidence, always. In Christ, our old man has been put to death, meaning... That our salvation hope in the earthly things died along with our old man when he was killed in the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator said, if we are dead to the things of the earth and we have renounced them as our happiness, then it is absurd to set our affections upon the things of the earth or to to seek after them. But then furthermore, Paul tells us here that by virtue of having died with Christ, we are now hidden with Christ in God. So much like the word last week in chapter 2, verse 6, that word walk, Paul again uses a word in a similar style that indicates a constant action with this word hidden. So we have been hidden with Christ. It is a past factual reality because in our baptisms we were buried with Christ. But 
The tense of this word in Greek indicates to us that it's also something that is being done to us by another. Meaning, something very specific. We do not hide ourselves in Christ. When we come to faith in Christ, when we are buried with Christ in our baptisms, our new lives in Christ are hidden into Christ by God himself. That has been Paul's point this entire time about an orthodox proclamation of of the gospel. It is done to us by God himself. And so this is why a mysticism grounded in orthodoxy is superior to every heretical teaching. Because of the work of God himself, our lives become a union that is with Christ and in God. Meaning, our lives become a life that is completely hidden within the divine. So that's one of two reasons. The other one is there in verse 4. And it actually builds upon verse 3. So if verse 3 is that past truth, you have been buried, past tense, with Christ, and you are now living, hidden in Christ, present tense, then verse 4 concerns the future tense. He writes this in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this is our end times. This is our future eschatological hope. What is now hidden in heaven will be made manifest at Christ's second advent. Telling us another important focus of a mysticism based in orthodoxy. The entirety of our existence is completely linked to the person of the Lord Jesus. So even as Christ was crucified and raised and will be revealed, so also those who are his have been crucified and raised and we too will be revealed. To put it simply for the sake of remembrance, what is true of Jesus is true of his bride, buried, raised, and glorified. I did not mean for that to rhyme when I wrote it, but I left it in there because it's easy to remember, right? What is true of Jesus is true of his bride, buried, raised, and glorified. Go with that this week. But then we come to the whole second half of this passage, right? So that's a mysticism that is grounded and based in orthodoxy. So now let's come to the second half of this, verses 5 through 11. And we see here that, because we have to remember, right, mysticism is great, right, as long as it's grounded in orthodoxy. But also at the same time, we still have to live and to work and to do life in the here and now. We have to do it in the physical flesh and blood bodies. We have concerns. We get sick. We have loved ones that die. We have to buy groceries. We have to pay for gas that's, you know, going out the roof, right? We have to do all of these things. So surely Paul doesn't expect us to ignore all earthly matters. Absolutely not. Surely there are some ascetic practices of the faith that we can observe rightly in an orthodox understanding of Christ. Absolutely. We know that. As baptized Christians, we are becoming in practice what we already are in spirit. So as we have died with Christ, so we know we must die daily by killing the old man and killing his passions. And so also as we were raised with Christ, we must also strive daily to put on the new man who is Christ Jesus and put on his practices as we are being restored into the image of God. So this is a focus of an asceticism, of an orthopraxy that is grounded and rooted in orthodoxy. So in verses 5 through 8, we're going to take this last section in two big chunks. In verses 5 through 8, What Paul does is he exhorts us to this orthodox, orthopraxy, right? 
one final time by reminding us of what we were, but also what we have been called to be. And he begins in verse 5 with that annoying word, therefore, right? One more time. So here's that stupid preacher joke, right? What's the therefore, therefore, right? So he writes this. He says, put to death, therefore. Well, what's, why, why is it there? Well, what have we just looked at, right? We have died with Christ and we have been raised to new life with Christ. We are hidden with Christ in God by the power of God. So therefore, put to death what is earthly. Or to state it another way, put to death in you the practices of those who are still dead in their sins and not alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is telling us, he's saying, put to death those things because that's not you anymore. You are beloved in Christ. That is not you anymore. One commentator wrote the word here. He said, said, we are to slay our former patterns of our old dead lives, which is cool if you think about, you know, being a knight with a sword and slaying these old things. But also like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message translation that he did. He, he wrote this. He said, this verse reads, this means killing off everything connected with our old way of death. I think that's a great way of translating this. John Calvin here, he came to this verse and he understood a twofold mortification of the flesh in verses 5 and 8. And by mortification, this just simply means subduing and killing our sin nature through an orthodox practice of the faith. But Calvin, he saw a twofold mortification. He saw an outward mortification, but also an inward one. And he connected it back to verse 2, which we just looked at. So we are to set our minds on the things that are above and not on the things of the earth. And then we come here. So to give an example, this is exactly one of the goals of fasting, right? By fasting, a biblically prescribed ascetic practice by fasting, we kill our sin nature. We, we work and strive to kill our old man. But according to Calvin, this mortification of the flesh is not just putting it to death in our flesh, but also it's part of that orthodox practice of turning our minds from the things of the earth and towards the things that are above where Christ is. So... Unlike this philosophy of empty deceit, Paul is not advocating for a practice of the faith that is empty or one that is necessary or required to be saved. That's what this heresy was saying. You have to do this to be saved. So being grounded in orthodoxy, we understand that we can't do anything to merit our salvation to God. That is only done through the flesh and blood of Christ and his death and resurrection. So, Instead, an asceticism, a practice of the faith that Paul is advocating for here is one that reflects what we already are. We have died with Christ, and we have been raised with Christ, and we will be raised and glorified in Christ when he appears. Our orthodox orthopraxy simply reflects our new life in the Lord Jesus. And so Paul tells us here, he says, put to death everything. Put your old man to death. Put to death those things that your old Adam, your old Eve, your old human person used to revel in and used to walk in and used to take joy in. Put to death all of those natural outworkings of a spirit that is dead and not hidden in Christ. And these are these things. Put to death what is earthly, sexual immorality. Put to death impurity. Put to death passion and evil desire and covetousness. These things are idolatry. And on these things, the wrath of God is coming Because in these two, you once walked because you were living in them. 
But now you must put them all away. Put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do this because these things are idolatrous and because God is pouring out his wrath on those old dead man actions. So before we close and we come to the table, consider what Paul is saying here in light of this heresy, but also any other heresy that tries to tempt us from orthodoxy. Because remember, according to Gnosticism, right, the body doesn't matter. Creation is evil. Only only the spirit is redeemable. Therefore, according to this heresy, this philosophy, what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. Brothers and sisters, this is the same lie that is told in our current biology-rejecting culture of today. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. Gender doesn't matter because it's a social construct and it's fluid. Sex doesn't matter. Because you just have confinements on it. But we're flesh and blood beings. We should just do what we want. The body doesn't really matter, though. As long as you're a good person on the inside, all the, the, matter, the body is just a shell to have a good time. So do what feels right in the moment because everything is just a social construct anyway. Y'all, that is modern Gnosticism. That is a denial of the goodness of creation and what we do with our body matters. Paul tells us in Romans 1, he says... He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. We aren't a gender and sexually confused culture. We are a creationally confused culture. He goes on in Romans 1 at the end of the chapter and he says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And then he lists the same things in Romans that he lists in Colossians. They are filled with evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is our culture perfectly defined. And Paul has told us here back in Colossians, for the people of God, these things ought not to be because we have been put to death in Christ. And these things are idolatrous, not only because they are works of our old dead man, but because they are also works of Satan, because they show contempt and hatred for God. Because, but these are the things in which we once walked, but now we walk in Christ. And we are to continue to walk in Christ and be rooted and built up in Christ and be firmly established in the faith of Christ. And then notice, though, in verse 8, how these things listed in verse 8 also not only have an effect on how we personally live in Christ, but they actually have an effect on our communal practice of the faith. By virtue of how they can work to not only build up, but also tear down the covenant community of God in his church. Listen to verses 8 through 10 again. He says this, But now you must put them all away, anger, malice, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices, and have put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So note again how how this is an encouragement to a mysticism that is grounded in orthodoxy. When our minds are contemplating the things that are above where Christ is seated, then our orthopraxy, our asceticism, 
our practice of the faith within the church becomes different. Church Father Ambrose, he gets, he gets to the heart of this matter. He, he says that this is our challenge to reclaim the image of God within one another. He says, the intention is that God may be all to us. And if we live after his image and his likeness, this benefit then passes from the individual to the community. For in his flesh, Christ has tamed the nature of all human flesh. And so in the death of Christ, our old man has been put to death. But now we have put on the new man. We have put on Christ Jesus himself. And this reality isn't just influential in our personal asceticism, but how we interact and engage with one another as we are being daily renewed individually and communally to the knowledge of Christ and in the image of God. And then he suggests as much in verse 11, which is where we'll end. And he writes this again, because here, he says, here, there is not Greek and Jew. Here, there is not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. He says here in the church, here in the covenant community of God, there are no divisions. Because divisions are based purely on human distinctions. You're a Jew and I'm a Greek. So it also means that if you're a Jew, you're circumcised and I'm not. I'm a slave, but you're free. We're different. These, thing, these, are, the thing, these are the distinctions of the earth, not the things that are above where Christ is. Because Christ transcends all of these human categorizations. Because as he, he ends the verse here, he says Christ is all and in all. Or, as we have read earlier in this letter, Christ is preeminent. And as the head of the church, his preeminence filters everything that we do and say towards one another. Our worship is influenced by his preeminence. It's influenced by his preeminence and how we act towards one another, how we say towards one another, how we do life together. And one of the centralized ways in which we express an orthodox asceticism here at Christ Community Church, other than, because we do it in a lot of ways, other than prayer and liturgy and singing and confession and the creeds, or the preaching and teaching of Scripture, one of the centralized ways in which we express an orthodox orthopraxy is by weekly partaking of the Eucharist, by coming to the table. One Greek Orthodox bishop wrote this. He said, the Eucharist is the par excellence of the, of the ascetic practices because in the Eucharist it perfectly reflects the communion of the saints. Asceticism is never the objective, but it is a means to an objective, which is Eucharistic communion. So, Christ Community Church, come and embrace the Christ-ordained practice of the faith by taking the communal meal, which commemorates the sacrificial and victorious death of Christ on the cross. Come and make thanks for what Christ has done by giving his flesh and blood in order to reconcile us to God and to one another. Come and proclaim the renewal of the image of God both in yourself and in one another. Because here there is not Greek or Jew. Here in the church there is not slave or free. There is not barbarian or Scythian because we are all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. So may God bless the preaching of his word to the glory of his name and to the glory of his church. Amen.